those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. It's Mexi, and today we have John Perkins on the show, which is outstanding. Um, I've talked a lot before about the confessions of an economic hitman. I've, I've used that in some of the videos I put out. And, um, I think we mentioned it in the episode we did on the world bank and the IMF and, and things like that. So it's fantastic to have him on the show. Unfortunately, there was a, a bit of, a I guess, miscommunication perhaps um, with his um, PR person. Um, I really wanted to have John on the show to talk about Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which we did talk about for the majority of the time. Um, however, John really, I think, wanted to come on the show to talk about his new book called Touching the Jaguar, which unfortunately, uh, Maureen and I have not had the chance to read yet, so we can't really say much to that effect. We are a decolonial show, of course, so if there are issues around, you know, kind of a neocolonial appropriation of indigenous knowledge, um, you know, we apologize. We we really wanted to talk to John mostly about the Confessions of an Economic Hitman. However, his new book may have um, a lot to offer as well, so um, if you are interested, you may check that out on your own time. <laughs> I just wanted to jump on before playing this episode because there was a bit of an uncomfortable, or not really uncomfortable, but there there was a bit of a I guess, disagreement or miscommunication in, in the middle of the podcast. So John is awesome. He really, really wants to transform our death economy into what he calls a life economy. And I feel like if he had more exposure to anti-capitalist theory, um, Marxist economic theory, anarchist theory, etc., cetera, um, he would probably be on board because he's really in support of figures like Allende, like Chavez, etc. But I mean, I think we have to understand that he is an economist and he was trained as an economist. And so his definition of capitalism is rather narrow. So his idea of capitalism is basically when, you know, companies are owned by private people, not the government versus, you know, I guess his idea of socialism or anti-capitalism or something else would be when the government owns everything, quote unquote, um, which is, of course, uh, you know, not the case. <laughs> and uh, if you're new to this podcast, I recommend checking out our other work or you can check out my YouTube channel, which is Mexi. Um, I do have a PhD in political economy and environmental issues. And so I kind of break this stuff down for people, hopefully in, in accessible ways. But I think it's really important to make clear that capitalism as a system, it's not just private people owning businesses. It is an entire system based on private property of the private ownership of the means of production. And it's based around competition and the accumulation of surplus value. Capitalism as a system began through violent acts of enclosure, which were called primitive accumulation, where land that was previously, well, it was owned, I suppose, by feudal lords, but, um, you know, peasants could use that land to grow their own food. Basically, they had some degree of control of the means of production, as, as in the means of what they need to subsist. Through the enclosure movements, all of that land was privatized, 
And so there was a, a wash of people who were disenfranchised, who were now landless, and they no longer had control over the means of production or the means of subsistence, and they had to move into cities and sell their labor for a wage. And through this, there developed two distinct classes, the class of owners and the class of laborers. The class of owners or the capitalists are the ones who had the capital, the resources, etc to control the means of production. So in that time, it was probably, you know, factories or things like that. And the people who did not own that, they did not own land, they did not own capital, they did not own what they needed to produce what they need for themselves to subsist, they all they could do was sell their labor for a wage to the capitalists. The capitalists created surplus value by not paying the laborers the full value of their social labor. So that's what allows for profits to be had and to be accumulated. And then through this system of private competition between firms, you know, these capitalists are now in competition with one another to increase profits, increase their market share, and to, to increase profits, basically, you keep your costs low. So you make sure that you keep your labor costs low, or you keep um, the, the amount that you're spending on environmental inputs to be low. So through this system of private competition, right, it makes even the most environmentally conscious and, you know, socially conscious capitalists, it makes them engage in practices if they want to grow bigger um, that are destructive to labor and destructive to the environment. That's basically how the system runs. And through competition, I mean, there's this idea in economics that like perfect competition is a thing that could happen, whereas uh, empirical reality shows us something much different. Even Anwar Shaikh, who is, I guess, more of a heterodox economist, um, really talks about this a lot. So, you know, there is no such thing as perfect competition. If you have competition, you're going to have some firms eventually outcompeting the others. And so concentration of capital into fewer and fewer and fewer hands is inevitable under this system. And as capital, capital concentrates into fewer and fewer hands, it is inevitable that those people are going to have undue influence on our democracy. And that's why that's exactly what we see today. Um, and John talks, touches on this in the podcast that, yes, you know, uh, the, the, the economist, the econ 101 version of capitalism does not exist in America. But that does not mean that America is not a capitalist country. It just means that the um, mainstream neoclassical economics view of capitalism is really out of touch with reality. And if you actually take a political economy view of the system that we're in, you realize that there's there's no saving the system, right? There's there's no amount of tweaking that would change the system fundamentally to make it something that wasn't, um, you know, the exploitation of laborers for profit and the exploitation of the environment for profit. Even if you have firms that are out there, you know, creating... Um, you know, green energy or cleaning up um, pollution and things like that, which we definitely need people to do. I mean, these are things that we need to do in the short term, of course, um, but we need to have our eye on transitioning out of the system because it, it will never be sustainable. 
our capitalist system has to grow by, I think, at least 3% per year to uh, maintain itself, to reproduce itself. And in order to do that, you know, we simply do not have the material throughput to do that. And we simply, like, we don't have any other places that we can outsource our labor to, right? We, we can't put too much more of a downward pressure on wages and labor and working class power in order to increase those profits. Like we have nowhere else to go. We're kind of at the end of, of, of the line here. And so we really desperately need to transform our system. And it can't just be trying to tweak capitalism to make capitalism better because capitalism won't be better, right? The idea of a corporation in itself um, under, this, under this system of exchange, production and exchange, um, it won't be sustainable. So I hope I've made that clear. I don't think I made it super clear within the podcast, as you'll hear. Was, and I, I was a little bit uncomfortable as well, because this isn't a show where this is, is definitely not a show where we bring people on to debate, right? I just I really wanted to have John to talk on to talk about, you know, his experiences and his knowledge and what he can share with us. And I really do think that he is on the right track for sure. Um, and I do think we need to transform our death economy into a life economy. Um, we just have, uh, I guess, different ideas of what that means and what that would look like. So I invite you to check out more of uh, this podcast, to check out you know my channel, um, to check out thinkers like um, Anwar Shaikh, David Harvey, Prof uh, Richard Wolf. I mean, if you're new here, of course, <laughs> but, you know, I, I just really think that this is very important to to understand, because if we work with the economist, the mainstream economist understanding of capitalism, we are never going to get at what the root is of our problem. And we are never going to be able to transform this economy because we'll be misdiagnosing like what, what the issue is here. And we won't be honoring the fact that the problems we're facing are systemic in nature and thus they will require a, a systemic overhaul. Within a system of competition where you are competing to capture market share and increase profits to maintain relevancy, to maintain steam, Corporations or capitalists or even entrepreneurs aren't going to choose to spend more money on their products or their building materials or things like that if it's going to make them less competitive or if they maybe don't have access to that, they don't have access to that funding. And then furthermore, average people, like average working people who get a certain wage, who are being exploited by this system, who are maybe not even making a living wage, they don't actually have the money to spend more money on products that would be more environmentally conscious, right? You can't convince someone to spend more money on something because it's better for the environment, it's better for the workers, it's better whatever, if they are a poor laborer themselves and they need to balance their own budgets, they're struggling in their own lives to get by, right? So the whole system really needs to change because this current system doesn't incentivize and doesn't really allow for that kind of radical transformation. And I just want to clarify that my solution is not to have just worker-owned co-ops, but still be within a capitalist market economy. I think that's another confusion that kind of, I think John kind of thought that's what I was saying. Um, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> we need a dramatically radical post-capitalist system. Um, and anyway, I, I talked about this in, in other episodes.
So yeah, that was just to say that, you know, if, you, if you've been listening to me for a while, you know that there were a number of things said that I personally disagree with. I also don't have such an optimistic view of the power of consumer campaigns. So I just wanted to point this out at the outset so that if you're listening and you kind of didn't hear me pushing back as much, it's because I did not want this to be a debate of any kind. Um... So yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the conversation was still really fruitful. I think it's really interesting to hear John's experience as an economic hitman and um, his thoughts on, you know, uh, imperialism more generally. But ultimately, we, we really cannot pretend that capitalism can be, you know, we can't put a put a happy face on capitalism and make it something that it's not inherently, right? The the inherent contradictions of capital will always create the problems that we're facing now if, le- if capitalism as a system is left to progress long enough, right? Um, it's, it's just inherent to the system. So having said that, I would just like to thank our recent patron subscribers, Kelsey Bomboy, uh, Zaituna Kusto, Elizabeth Beavers, Dustin Ward, Susie Fischleder, Jessica M., and Amanda Deal. We also got a very generous one-time donation via PayPal from Subankan Manikar. So thank you so much, everyone, for your generous support. If you would like to support the show, you can become a monthly patron donor at patreon.com slash veganvanguard or give us a one-time donation via PayPal, which is up on our website, veganvanguardpodcast.com. Or please share our episodes with friends and family. And give us ratings on iTunes or whatever app you listen to us on to help increase our reach. So without further ado, let us dive into this interview with John Perkins. So I I think a lot of people... Uh, know you. We've we've talked a lot on the show about the World Bank and the IMF and structural adjustment and things like that. And uh, I've shouted out Confessions of an Economic Hitman uh, several times because um, I think it's a really great book that shows shows us the inside of of what's really going on um, with all these these processes that we we label as structural adjustment or things like that. But we we kind of have a distance from so. Um, for people who are unaware of what an economic hitman is, maybe they haven't read the book, could you summarize a bit the, the work that you did as an EHM and what you see as its ultimate purpose and effects? Well, yes, Maxi. So as, a, as an economic hitman, and, and my title was actually chief economist at a major consulting firm, I had anywhere from 30 to 50 people working for me at, at different times. My job um, as, a, as chief economist, as an economic hitman, was to identify countries that are had resources that our corporations wanted, like oil, and then arrange huge loans to those countries through the World Bank and, and its sister organizations. But the money never actually went to the country. Instead, it went to our own corporations to build big infrastructure projects in those countries, things like uh, electric power systems, um, industrial parks, highways, ports things that made a lot of money for our corporations that made huge profits off these projects and that helped a few rich people, rich families in those countries, the ones that owned the industries, that owned the industrial parks, that owned all of these things that would benefit. And 
the majority of the people actually suffered because money was diverted from health care, education, other social services to pay off the interest on the debt. And in the end, the debt couldn't be repaid, and we'd go back in, usually under the guise of the International Monetary Fund, and offer to restructure the loans. Mm -hmm. But the country had to meet what we call conditionalities, which meant that they had to agree to sell their oil or whatever the resource was real cheap to our corporations without environmental or social regulations or privatize uh, their public sector businesses, schools, uh, hospitals, uh, utility companies, and so on and so forth, and sell them to our investors cheap, or let us build a military, the US, let the U.S. build a military base on their soil, things like that. And uh, what we were really doing was, was creating this um, global empire, really a corporate empire under, under, under U.S. sponsorship. Uh, and when ultimately we were creating an economic system that's failing us badly today, that's, that's actually what we call a death economy that's consuming itself into extinction, that, that, that destroys in the short term. It's based on, a, on, the, on, the, on the perception, on the premise that companies must maximize their short term profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. And it's destroying uh, life as we know it on this planet today. That's the short version. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so your role in that was to basically, I mean, you, you called it kind of falsifying numbers um, to uh, make it seem as though um, the projections for economic growth were, you know, fantastical in these countries to basically uh, sell them on, on accepting these loans. Um, and I think it's it's interesting that you attribute climbing the ranks of of Maine, which is the consulting firm that you worked for, to your willingness to kind of um, produce the numbers that uh, that your your bosses wanted, the the numbers that would work in service of empire, not because you were necessarily the most prolific economist, right? Absolutely correct. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was doing my job, which was to 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 to, sh to make it look like um, investing in these systems would increase gross domestic product, which is the way we measure uh, economic growth. Um, and so again, it, it is about this idea of you creating a re reality by changing perception. So we produce these fancy reports, my staff would, and econometric models that would create the perception that if these countries took on these huge loans, hired our companies to build these infrastructure projects, everybody in the country would prosper. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, I was encouraged to really inflate the numbers as to how much the country would prosper. But the other side of that coin, which comes out a lot in the new book, Touching the Jaguar, is that um, the whole idea of GDP growth, growth is a false perception that measures really the rich. It doesn't measure true prosperity in the country. Mm -hmm. So, so Mexico, if you, if you take, for example, just take the United States, uh, three individuals have as much wealth as, as half the population of this country. We, we know that. Mm -hmm. And if those three individuals last year made a 10% return on, on their investments on average, and half the country lost 3%, the overall GDP growth would be something a little under 5%. So it would look as though everybody's prospering, but it's just not true. The majority of the people are suffering, only a few are, are prospering. And that's true in countries throughout the world, that these 
our measurements, GDP is a very false, it's not a measurement of, of overall prosperity, it's a measurement of prosperity of, of major owners, of, you know, stockholders of the big businesses, the, 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 the big wealthy. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And um, I, I wanted to touch on a few things that were behind this. Um, you talk a lot about kind of this like red scare rhetoric that was behind a lot of this, um, you know, the U.S. Uh, just calling leaders communists if they didn't, uh, if they didn't, I guess, bow down to U.S. empire um, and then using that as a, as a reason to go in and overthrow them. I wanted to also touch on the role of patriarchy in all of this, because you described Maine as a fairly patriarchal institution. Uh, you talked about how women were were traded or abused or used to seduce decision makers or even EHMs. Um, you described the main players in all of this as kind of belonging to a fraternity. And, um, you know, you, you said you yourself were partly lured into working in this line of work based on kind of this kind of male fantasy of like kind of being like James Bond or something like that, right? Um, so how do you understand the role in, in, of patriarchy in uh, capitalist expansionism and kind of this empire building? Well, it's been extremely really powerful. It's been a strong, awful role. I mean, I say powerful, I mean powerful in the worst ways. Uh, there's no question. It wasn't, and it's not just male patriarchy. It's, it's white male patriarchy, and much more, even more specifically, white male American patriarchy. That's this has such a huge influence in the world, and that's changing today. As the Japanese, uh, excuse me, the Chinese are coming in more more strongly, and uh, the American role is being uh, seen as, as as diminishing tremendously. And and this coronavirus that we're that we're experiencing now has had a major influence on making America look really bad. The wealthiest country in the world, uh, it has the greatest rate of. Uh, that's pandemic, the coronavirus. And I mean, it's absurd. And, and we don't have the largest population in the world. We're third largest, and but we're by far the wealthiest, and we have the worst case of that. And of course, all the demonstrations, some of which are resulting in terrible riots against police brutality, and a lot of it's against just plain white superiority, white male superiority. Mm -hmm. So that's played a, a, a very drastic and very negative role in the world. It's it's created, uh, to a large degree, this this death economy that we have, this economic system that we now know is failing us. And when you come right down to it, all the crises that we're currently facing, whether it's climate change, or income inequality, racial injustice, or the coronavirus, these are all problems, but they're not the problem. They're symptoms of the problem, which is this this failed economic system, and it's it's more than economics; it's a governmental, social, economic system that's totally failed us, and mm -hmm. it's been propagated by by yeah white male American patriarchy. And and I didn't mention before Mexico, but but it's worth mentioning that I knew when I was trying to convince these leaders of countries to put their countries into this deep debt, accept these loans that I mentioned earlier. That and they knew that if they didn't accept these conditions, they were likely to then be confronted by people we call jackals, mm -hmm. and these were usually CIA assets who either would overthrow governments or assassinate their leaders. And unfortunately, the United States has a large 
history of that, and we've admitted to, you know, being deeply involved, the CIA was deeply involved in the overthrow of President Allende of Chile and, and Mossadegh of Iran and Arbenz of Guatemala and La Moma of the Congo and on and on and on and on and on. So I'd go up to these presidents and say, hey, you can accept these large loans, put your country deep into debt, you and your families are going to get rich off this, or you could go the way that these other presidents have gone that didn't play the game and are no longer alive or no longer holding office. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really about intimidation and uh, domination for sure. The um, carrot so, and the stick. Pardon? The carrot and the stick. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can make a lot of money, or uh, you can go down. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I guess speaking of those connections with the jackals. Uh, when most people think about structural adjustment, they think mainly of the World Bank and IMF, I think, as being the main players. But as you described, this work is being done by private firms with very close ties to U.S. intelligence uh, and organizations like USAID. Um, so I guess talk a bit more about the connections between firms like Halliburton, Bechtel, et cetera, the NSA and CIA and the World Bank. Well, all of these firms that you mentioned and, and many others, it includes the big, the ones that make the equipment, the, the, the IBMs, the General Electrics and, and, and many others. Um, yeah, there's this very, very strong connection of promoting their work and using U.S. government agencies like the ones you mentioned, USAID. The World Bank officially is not a U.S. government agency, but the U.S. plays a huge role in it. And we, the president of the United States chooses the president of the World Bank. We really dominate that institution as well as its sisters like the Inter-American Development Bank and the Asian Development Bank and others. Uh, and they work so closely with American business. And I have to say that historically they came from a, uh, a good motivation at the end of World War II. These banks were formed to rebuild a devastated Europe after the war. And they did a good job at that. They did an excellent job. But then along came right after that, that well, in this, uh, actually about the same time that they were rebuilding Europe, the Soviet Union uh, raised its head and it became this huge competition between the, the Soviets and the NATO countries led by the United States. And so the banks began to play a much bigger role and all of these agencies began to play a much bigger role in supporting U.S. capitalism, supporting U.S. corporations. Mm-hmm. When they and, and that was true during my time in the 70s when I was an economic hitman. And then in 1991, when the detente occurred, there's no more Soviet Union. It's, it's been demolished. Uh, the, 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 the banks, like the World Bank and all these organizations, USAID and so on, were, were extremely entrenched in, in, with corporate America. So even though there was no longer this enemy, the red enemy, uh, they moved forward. And of course, other so-called enemies arose, like uh, the, the, the Muslims uh, uh, and uh, uh, today the Chinese. And we, we, we see all these, these reasons out there that, that somewhat replaced the idea of the communist red tide taking over the world. Mm-hmm. Today, you know, it's, it's moved into other arenas, but it's still there. And, 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 and U.S. corporations, now each one of them, all the major ones have their own versions of economic hitmen, people who go to countries or they'll go to Indonesia and they'll say, hey, if you let us, if you let the, our company locate its next manufacturing facility in Indonesia, if you give us tax breaks and you don't, and you, and you keep your labor rates low, we'll go to you. Otherwise, we'll go to the Philippines. And, and they play these countries off against each other. And 
And even within the United States, you know, we recently saw where Amazon played New York off of, uh, I think, some you know, places in Virginia and, and Seattle and, and so on and so forth. So these these private economic hitmen for private corporations are, are going out too and and promoting those corporations. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a big business, this economic hitman business today, much bigger than it was during my time in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it just keeps growing and growing as accumulation concentrates into fewer and fewer hands, right? Um, and you're right that there will always be another bad guy, right? There will always be something <laughs> to justify um, continuing down this path. So, um, yeah, and you mentioned that you were actually evaluated, you believe, by the NSA, uh, which is why what got you your job at Maine, correct? Yeah, I, well, it's not that I believe. I, I was yeah. recruited by the NSA uh, while I was still in business school. I spent a couple of days in there being tested in, the, in their offices in the, in the JFK Federal Building in Boston, including a series of very intense lie detector tests and psychological tests. And, uh, you know, they, 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 de- they determined that I had, this goes back to your earlier comment, that I had... Uh, three major weaknesses. Now, I'd been raised in a boys' private school where my dad taught, a boarding school in New Hampshire. I, we had a home, a small house given to us by the school. I, I ate with 200 boys from the time I was about four years old. My dad made almost no money. We had all the essentials. But I was surrounded by very, very, very rich boys. And I didn't have much contact with, with women. But man, you know, when you go up in a boys' school, you, you hear a lot. <laughs> you hear a lot of things. So I was fascinated and very shy. And during these NSA tests, they, they determined that I was quite seducible to go to work for them, that I had three main weaknesses, money. I mean, I wanted money. I'd grown up with all these rich kids, and I, and I was poor, and I'd heard stories about all these incredible parties these kids would go to in New York and Buenos Aires and Paris and all over. And, and I wanted money. I wanted power and sex. And and they determined that during these interviews. And then and while I was still in business school, I, 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 I'm offered, I'm recruited by them, I'm offered a job by them, a training, to become a trainee, basically. And But I also wander into this talk that a Peace Corps recruiter is giving. And I'm fascinated by the idea of going to the Amazon. I've always wanted to experience what it's like to live with people that lived like the early indigenous people of the United States when the colonists arrived. How did the the Abnakis and the Algonquin, who who were from, who, who lived where I'm from, New Hampshire and, and New England, how did they live? And and there's one place in the world where people still live that way, the Amazon. So I I go back to the at the NSA who's been who's been recruiting very very high up. Um, and uh, in the NSA and, and tell him this. And he says, oh, yeah, join the Peace Corps. We'll, we'll help you get in and you'll learn another language. You'll learn survival techniques. You'll learn about other cultures. You'll be much more valuable to us. And when you come out, you can come to work for us. Or even more likely, he said, you may very well go to work for a private corporation. And that, that because a lot of people are working for private corporations and, and helping us move forward with our agenda that way. And so that's exactly what happened. I joined the Peace Corps, was sent to the Amazon, and lived there for a couple of years, and then another year up in the Andes. And when I got out, I was brought in to work for, for Charles T. Maine, this, this consulting firm as an economist, very quickly became chief economist. And the guy that hired me at Maine, the senior vice president, I, I later discovered was uh, you know in the, in the Army Reserve. 
uh, very high up in the Army Reserve, and he was a liaison with the intelligence agencies, including the NSA. So they had all this information on me from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Um, so I'm wondering, because today the role of the NSA has obviously greatly expanded in our everyday lives, um, and we're also being very closely monitored by big tech corporations. So we have Facebook and Google working with the Atlantic Council and the Weekly Standard determining what is or is not fake news. Um, they're threatening now to censor posts about the rebellions going on against police brutality if they continue. Um, we have companies like Cambridge Analytica influencing political processes at home and abroad. So um, how do you say how do you see today's big tech corporations fitting into all of this? And um, do you see them potentially contributing to EHM activity at home or abroad in the future? Um, there's no question that they that, that, that these corporations have just uh, outrageous ability to control the thoughts and ideas we come at the beginning, you know, I mentioned that uh, the, the, my new book, Touching the Jaguar, one of the main themes is how we mold reality through changing perceptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that's what I did as an economic hitman. Uh, and, and when you come right down to it, uh, Maxi, there's no United States, there's no Russia. There's no corporations, there's no religion, there's no culture, there's nothing, none of the human institutions that we have would exist if we didn't first perceive them. And when enough people have a, accept a perception or codify it into law, it has a huge impact on, on reality. And these high-tech, these tech firms, all of them, the Googles, the Facebooks, the, the, the Twitters, the, 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 you know, all of them, mm-hmm. uh, have a tremendous ability to mold all of that they call, they mine as they, they say they mine all this information from us they know so much about us it's extremely scary on the other hand it also presents all of us with an opportunity to do things that we never could do before we can organize consumer campaigns uh we can we can you know if i decide if, or if you decide if one of your listeners decides hey i don't like the way nike's conducting its business in indonesia they're not paying their their, their workers a fair wage you can organize a, a huge campaign and go out and 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 send and, and get your social networking circles to send letters to Nike saying, "Hey, I love your product. I'm not going to buy them anymore until you pay your workers a fair salary." And I've had so many executives tell me that, that, that those things make a huge influence on them. Um, they want to they, they they hear from their customers. It's consumer movements can be very very big very easily these days. Just sit at home on the computer. Uh, so there's there's these opportunities. But there's also this danger, and I think what you know we're we're learning more and more is is that this needs to be regulated in in some way. And yes, freedom of speech is extremely important. I'm a writer. I, I, I totally believe in freedom of speech, but I but I don't think that includes the freedom to just constantly lie and spread false information uh, that's accepted. So I, I think I, I've been I've been gratified to see. Uh, Twitter uh, basically censure President Trump. <laughs> a president should not get away with the kind of lies that this president gets away with. I, you know, I think throughout history we can throughout most of my lifetime when presidents lie so overtly and 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 so viciously sometimes they've always been called to task on it and most of them haven't 
done it to anywhere near the extent that it's currently being done by this president and and it's it's very it's made very easy for him by the social media mm-hmm. well he's certainly broken their terms of service <laughs> several times with some of the threats that he's made um but yeah i mean i agree that um you know twitter especially has been really wonderful during all of the these uprisings all over the world right now because activists are able to connect with one another we're able to um share images and videos of what's going on with police brutality that doesn't make it into the mainstream media um so that's been very important but i mean certainly um in terms of security uh a lot of activists are um like it's just not very secure, I suppose, uh, to be on a lot of these platforms, um, especially because uh, organizations like the Atlantic Council and the Weekly Standard, run by Bill Kristol, are out there de- like determining what is what is or is not fake news, right? And so um, I like what you said about um, you know there is no United States and, and things like that in terms of the way that we construct our reality. Um, it's been very dominated by, as you say, this white supremacist, like patriarchal capitalist imagination. And Adrian Marie Brown talks a lot about that too, that, you know, we're, we're living inside of, of certain people's imaginations. Um, and so it's really, really important for us to imagine something anew, imagine a, a better kind of post-capitalist future that, um, that wouldn't replicate these, these violences. So, yeah, so I, I wanted to touch a bit on um, you mentioned that the American empire is arguably in decline. Uh, you know, we've seen how neoliberal policies and deregulation and automation, along with union busting and things like that, have significantly weakened working class power. Uh, wages have stagnated. People are in increasing amounts of debt, <laughs> which you talk about a lot. Um, and we also see countries like China on the rise because we've outsourced basically everything there. So um, given all of this this unrest right now and people kind of moving to fight back against systemic injustice, um, how do you think the empire will react and what will it do to protect itself? Well, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a whole book right there you've asked for. <laughs> and, and, and actually quite a lot of it is in Touching the Jaguar. But um, let's see. So... You know, I I travel around the world a lot, or, or I did until this pandemic. I've had to cancel some trips, but I I recently gave a speech to 12,000 high up executives at a at an international economic forum in in St. Petersburg, Russia, and I've spoken in China, and I spent a lot of time in Latin America. I, I speak Spanish fluently. I know a lot of people in very high positions in some in some of these countries, including some of Putin's top economic advisors who've who've read my books and and, and approached me. And it's very interesting, you know, to to see what's what's truly going on at this point. And, and I think it's fair to say that there's, I don't think I can I don't know any country in the world that any longer looks at the United States as a model they'd like to follow. They used to. I don't think that's true anymore. Now, a lot of individuals want to come to the United States because they see it as a, as a country of opportunity and, and where people can can uh, have freedom of speech. And many of the of the, of the things that we have, uh, at least up until now, enjoyed very strongly. But as a model for for a democracy, we're, we're obviously not a democracy. The electoral college is is there. It's, it, money talks in this country is so big. We know that a corporate executive has a lot more power over who gets elected than I do or you do. Uh, and 
so we're not a model for democracy. We're not even a model for capitalism. We're not a capitalistic country. Capitalism is defined as, as being a system whereby uh, private people own businesses. The government doesn't own businesses, and it's based on, on competition, fair competition. Uh, so it is true that most of our businesses are not owned by the government. They're owned by private individuals. But the reverse is true, that those individuals own the government. You don't get elected president without a lot of money from those people. And so they have tremendous power. So it's, it's reversed that, that definition. And competition is out the window. And, you know, I mean, it still exists on a small scale. But amongst, you know, if, if you if you got to go up against a, a Walmart or any one of the big corporations and you want to compete with them, forget it. You're going to be torn apart. You're going to be destroyed. And that includes the high tech firms, too. We've seen what companies like uh, Microsoft and so many others can do to their competitors. So we're, we have what, my, what a lot of economists, including me, refer to as a predatory capitalism that's created this death economy. And the world doesn't look to that as an example anymore. Uh, maybe certain leaders around the world would like to re replicate that. Uh, Bolsonaro of Brazil would like to be replicating that in Brazil and, and, and perhaps uh, Johnson of uh, you know in England, but 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 people don't respect us. We've lost a tremendous respect. And as I spend time in Latin America is a great example. In so many countries there, I talk to leaders, and they say, you know, we don't ever want to take any more loans from any American-dominated organizations like the World Bank. We're taking them from China, and they are. And China's very very present all over in many many parts of Latin America today. Um, and I say, well, why do you prefer China? Don't you think they want to steal your resources also, like what we did? And they say, well, that's probably true. Uh, we can't, we don't have the technology to develop oil and, 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 and mineral exploitation and so on. We need help from somebody. And the difference is, they say, you know, China's never assassinated one of our leaders. China's never put a military base on our soil. Uh, China's never, you know, uh, forced us to sell off our private sector to to their investors. Mm -hmm. And it, and I say, well, don't you think they might do that in the future? And they say, well, that's certainly possible. But what we know is that the United States has a long history of doing that. We don't trust the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't necessarily trust China either, but we trust China. We trust the United States less than we trust China because you've proven that you're untrustworthy. And that makes me very, very sad, Maxie. My, I, my heritage is very much American. Uh, my, my ancestors fought in the revolution in every war since until Vietnam. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sad at, at what this country's done. We, we lost a tremendous opportunity after the Soviet Union's demise in 91. Where we could have gone out to the world and said, hey, we're going to prove that we can be a model for democracy and a, a form of capitalism that works, that serves the people, not just a few rich people. We didn't do that. We did the opposite. And therefore, we've opened the door to the Chinese and or the Russians. But the Chinese is the big economy now. And they're smart. They know how to they know how to go in and exploit situations. And I'm sad that, the, that that we brought this upon ourselves. And I write these books because I want to see us do a lot, lot better. Not because I'm opposed to America, I'm not, but because I realize that, that in order to correct the errors we've made in the past, we've got to admit to those errors, 
We've got to face them. We've got to, that's touching the Jaguar, facing your errors, facing your resistance to change. And when you touch that, you receive the, the energy, the, the Jaguar, which is this image from the Amazon, that they say when you touch that Jaguar, it gives you the energy, the courage, the knowledge, whatever it is you need uh, to move forward and make the changes that you know you ought to make. As, a, as an individual, you can look at it that way. As a society, as a country, we can look at, that, at, at it that way. Mm-hmm. And this coronavirus is forcing us to take another deep step and look at ourselves very, very seriously. And the whole world's watching how we're mm-hmm. reacting to this. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah, um, full disclosure, uh, we are an anti-capitalist show, so we kind of lean more towards the idea that um, the problems are systemic. So, um, you know, even if even if people wanted to create a system of capitalism that would serve people more than corporations, like maybe moving more towards a social democratic model, like in the Scandinavian countries or things like that, um, that well, systemically, sorry. Yeah, Maxie, the, the social democratic model is also capitalistic. I think. Oh, I know. Yes. It, we're defining it differently. My grandson's lemonade stand is is capitalism. The local farmer's market is a capitalistic system. The old original, all of the, I mean, it's very, very difficult to have any kind of economy that isn't, if you want private ownership instead of government ownership and you want competition, that's true capitalism. So I think we've, we've reached a, what we're dealing with now is, a, is an extreme form of capitalism. It's horrible. I'm totally anti, opposed to it, too. I'm totally, totally against what we have today. Totally. But I think we have to be be, confused, be, be, be concerned as to what we really are talking about here. What kind of a system are we talking about? Are we talking about a system where the government owns every, everything? That's that's not capitalism. That's the opposite of capitalism, the old Soviet system, and I, where the government owns everything. Is that what yeah. you're talking about? When no. you say you're capitalist, does that mean you're pro what you know government ownership of everything no so i think we have different um i guess we would probably have different definitions of what is capitalism and what is kind of anti-capitalism or post-capitalism so um yeah i i guess i I go from like the marxist definition of capitalism being uh, a system that is based on private property and private ownership of the means of production um whereas post-capitalism or some other kind of a system that is based around worker ownership of the means of production. Um, so uh, I don't know if you know of uh, Prof uh, Richard Wolf or David Harvey or, or any of those people who talk about these things, the systemic nature or the structural issues that are inherent to capitalism, right? Like if you have competition, um, even if you have pure competition, then certain firms are going to outcompete other ones. And then, um, you know, accumulation and into fewer and fewer hands is inevitable under the system as we have it. Um, and so we really do need to change that system is kind of where yeah. we're, we're coming from at the, uh, the show. But um, I think we might just have maybe different definitions. of. Well, yeah, I, I, that's not quibble over words. I think... Mm-hmm. There's another perspective, and that is, I, I think the real problem, it, it, you know, you can argue words of what you call a system, but the real problem is what we've created is a global economic system that's based on on the, the perception that, that the goal should be to maximize short-term profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs. 
-hmm. and short-term, the satisfaction of short-term materialistic desires for individuals. Now, if you have a company that's owned by all of its employees, which I, which I love that idea, I think it's a great idea, but if its goal is to maximize short-term profits, it's still going to lead to an economic system that does not look at the long term. So what we really need to look at here is how do we change the perception of what it means to be successful, regardless of who the owners are? Mm -hmm. and, and, and that is, so if we, if we change that perception to the, the, the goal is to maximize long-term benefits for people in nature, for as an individual, our goal is to maximize our long-term benefits and those of our family. And as corporations, that is to do the same. That leads us to this an economic system or governmental social economic system that we call a life economy, whereby we pay people, entrepreneurs, corporations, whatever, whoever they're owned by, we pay them to clean up pollution, to come up with means to, to mine all the gasoline that's leaked in gas stations around the world and, and, and in oil drilling sites. We pay corporations to regenerate destroyed environments, to, to clean up the, the plastic that's floating around in the oceans and recycle it. We, we, we pay people and, and, and companies, whoever owns them, to, to come up with new methods for recycling, for using the air and the, and the wind and the, the sun and the air to create energy, to create the things that we've been doing by ravaging the earth. So we come up with a system that actually doesn't ravage the earth anymore and really looks at the long term. And in a way, this is where my books on indigenous people, the five books on it, really tie in because indigenous people have always looked at the long term. We, you know, we talk about the seventh generation, the long term. And we've got to realize that we, we all come from indigenous people. For the last 250,000 years or so that we've been humans on this planet, most of that time we've, we've lived life economies. It's only been within the last blink of an eye <laughs> historically that we've moved to this idea of short-term benefits. So I don't care what we call the system, whether we call it social democratic or, or capitalistic or anti-capitalist or whatever it is, but whoever owns it, and I love employee ownership, but if employee ownership has the goal of maximizing short-term profits, regardless of the social and environmental cost, that's not going to give us the answer. Mm -hmm. The answer is to be a new perception of what it means to be successful. Who makes the cover of Time magazine as the person of the year? Who do we look at as, as, our, as, as, as the figures that we, that we want to bring our children up to be like? It'll be the leaders of, of, corp, of, of, of whatever, our institutions, that look to creating long-term benefits mm -hmm. for, rather than the short-term gain principle that we're working under now. And, and that's why I think we talk a lot about systems and system change, because we really need to foster a system which doesn't incentivize, uh, you know, short term gain over the long term. Right. Because um, our current system really does incentivize that. Um, and the way that, you know, our competition is set up and things like that, uh, people are incentivized to go that route because um, you can make a lot of money doing that. So, um yeah, absolutely. So um, I wanted to talk a bit about some of the more recent coups that we've seen happen since the book was published. So Bolivia comes to mind, if you'd like to comment on that. Um, but it's been very brazen in Venezuela with reports of U.S.-backed rioters on the ground, reminiscent of the Chavez years, uh, Bolton saying that it would be great to get our oil companies in there. Um, there was this embarrassing kind of new attempt at a coup by that squad of mercenaries 
um, who were apparently discouraged by the CIA, but not stopped. Um, and the U.S. has also just put out a bounty on Maduro's head during this pandemic. So uh, would you say these, these newer coups are rep- reminiscent of the old, or are there novel strategies that you see that are being used? And um, how can we effectively fight against U.S. imperialism abroad? You know, we, we went through this big swing in history back... Um, um, so when um, Chavez was uh, president of Venezuela and the CIA launched a coup against him, uh, he, he overcame it. He was very, very smart uh, and he beat the, beat, beat the CIA at their own game. Um, at that time, President Bush didn't send in the troops, which he might have done at other times because he was so engaged in the Middle East, I think, that he couldn't afford to do that. A and B, because he was afraid of losing oil in the Middle East, the oil companies also put tremendous pressure on him. Don't, don't, don't rock the boat too much in Venezuela. We may need their oil more and more in the future. But so Chavez stayed in power, and that encouraged uh, leaders throughout Latin America, uh, from uh, Rafael Correa. I was just on his TV show with him the other day. He's now he's, his term has ended. He's living in Belgium. To in uh, Morales and 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 so many others. We, in Brazil, we had Lula. We had in, in, we had Chile and Argentina. Um, so all throughout Latin America, leadership was encouraged. Now, okay, the CIA is going to let us become much more leftist. At the same time, very shortly after that, 2008, 2009, we had this horrible economic recession uh, throughout the region, and so people. Voters in these countries were really looking to a change. They said, the old system doesn't work, the old autocratic system run by the wealthy. Let's bring some, some, some new forces into power. And that happened. Ten countries in Latin America uh, brought in, in a large degree because of Chavez uh, overcoming the CIA coup, attempted coup against him. Uh, ten countries then responded by, by bringing in, in what we call leftist or social democratic, whatever you want to call it, uh, progressive leaders, uh, many of them really phenomenal at philosophy and, and at, at getting the, the leadership. But some of them weren't particularly good at, at, at actually administrating it. I, I met with, with, Morale, with Morales in Bolivia and, you know, Morales admitted that, you know, he came in, there was no structure in place. You know, he didn't have advisors. He didn't have people who had any experience. It was a whole new thing. It was very, very difficult for them. Uh, and so, but that, that succeeded for quite a while. But then, yes, the United States, our corporations started rearing that ugly imperialistic head again. And we had this huge now reaction against that. So, so many of these presidents have been driven out, Morales being one of them, Correa being one of them. Uh, and, you know, and, and we've just a horrible situation where, where, where corporations went in, the government went in. The classic example was 2009, Honduras, President Zelaya, democratically elected president, ran on a ticket. Uh, whereby uh, he, he he promised to raise w- w- wages, minimum wage, and to institute land reform that would that would take a lot of land out of the hands of Dole and Chiquita and other big foreign corporations and put it back in the hands of his people. He won. He began to implement these policies. He increased the wage rate by 60%, and the CIA went in and overthrew him mm-hmm. and launched this huge propaganda campaign throughout 
Central America and Latin America, and in the, including in the United States, accusing him of being a puppet of, of Castro, which was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. uh, and but he was overthrown. And and then uh, there's a whole other story around Korea, which I talk about in, in, in the New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Um, so, yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the whole idea of Yankee imperialism, of manifest destiny, of the Monroe Doctrine that the United States has a right to do whatever it thinks it needs to do to protect its interests, which are mainly corporate interests in Latin America, rose to an, a whole new level following this incredible really kind of a revolution of the in, in 10 countries that, that really went, I think they were headed in a, in a very great direction, but there were tremendous mm -hmm. obstacles in the United States and in, in all of our various agencies and corporations did everything they could to make it difficult for these countries to move forward under more progressive leadership. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um Given the pandemic that's going on right now, I mean, we saw that the U.S. put out this bounty on Maduro's head during the pandemic. It's kind of like they're they seem to be maybe using the cover of the pandemic to move forward on kind of their imperialist agendas. Um, we also saw them tighten sanctions around Iran. And we're seeing now, you know, a lot of small businesses are obviously losing ground and and being taken over. Or There's, you know, word of uh, the fact that there will be a lot of corporate takeovers. Um, so do you think this pandemic will be used for more EHM activity? And uh, how do you think we might push back against that? Well, you know, it's kind of like the uh, um, shock doctrine, the book by uh, Naomi Klein. Mm -hmm. She talks about how when, when we get these times of shock, and certainly this is a huge one, this pandemic, Yes, forces set in to try to take advantage of those. So I have no doubt that that, that attempt will occur. But my hope is that, that that we're waking up so much to the idea of new systems uh, mm -hmm. that that we're that, that the people will uh, see things differently. And I think we're seeing that with a lot of leadership. Uh, I'm I live in the in, in the state of Washington. Uh, our governor here, Governor Inslee, I think is 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 really working hard to use this pandemic as a way to institute uh, new reforms in, in police activities and and so many other things and how we do education and other things. So, uh, you know, I, I think these two forces are are at at play here. That we're we're looking at this possibility of a change. Here's an interesting little story as a you know as a side a true story so there's a wonderful woman shaman in in the mountains of, of ecuador she's quechua lives in the mountains her name is it's got a great name maria juana uh -huh. uh, and i take groups to visit indigenous people in colombia and in guatemala and in and in ecuador every every year i had to cancel a couple this year but i've got one in january to guatemala people if they go to my website johnperkins.org they can learn more but in any case so we were there a few years ago uh, at maria juana's place and somebody in the group and i'm translating somebody in the group asked so maria juana how do we save the earth <laughs> and she laughs, you know, and she says, well, the Earth's not in danger. We can't save it. We don't need to save the Earth. We humans are in danger and, and sort of a lot of other species that we take with us. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like so many fleas. And if we get to be too big of a nuisance, she'll just <laughs> shake us all off. And then Maria Juana points up at Imbabura, the sacred volcano that hovers over her house, huge mountain. And she says, you know, about 20 years ago, that volcano was covered with a massive ice cap. 
It's gone. The Geishap isn't there at all anymore. Pachamama, Mother Earth, is twitching. She's sending us a warning. And we're in a blessed position today to be able to listen to those warnings. We better listen. We better listen to the warnings. And, you know, uh, over the years since, Mexi, as I've as we've been hit by massive hurricanes, earthquakes, fires in California and Australia and many other places, tsunamis, I've always thought about that and how that these are all these messages that are coming through to us. Mm-hmm. And, but people have always looked at them as, as local. So if I survive a hurricane, I expect the outside world is going to come to my rescue fairly soon with bottled water, food, and I'm going to be encouraged to go back to normal, grow things and be normal. Well, you know, these 100, these once in 100 year events that happen every year or so are, have been sending us messages, but we haven't taken the message globally. We haven't taken it seriously. We're going to rebuild the old normal. We, we don't want the old normal. We don't want the death economy. We want a new normal. And this this pandemic is the latest, and it's hitting everybody. It's global. We can no longer look to the outside world to help us. My hope, then, is that we're going to awaken. And I think there is a consciousness revolution that's going on around the planet. It began before this. You know, everywhere I travel around the world, many, many people would come to hear talks and go on programs like yours, everywhere in the world, waking up to the fact that we live on a fragile space station the earth, and there are no shuttles to get us off. I think people have been waking up to this. We've seen a response by the, the, even in the political and business community, B corporations, benefit corporations, the idea of employee ownership, re-emerging, the Green New Deal, uh, conscious capitalism. There's there's all these kind of movements that have been stirring. And, And, you know, now the coronavirus hits us, and we're seeing that we don't need to go to these big, you know, we don't need to go out into the stores anymore. We don't need to fly around to go to meetings. I don't need to come to where you are to have this conversation with you. I can do it this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're seeing a whole new way. and We're seeing stars at night over Beijing and L.A. We're seeing we're seeing the possibilities. There's a consciousness revolution. But whenever there's a revolution, the status quo pushes back. The Trumps of the world, the ones who have the power and the money they think that they've got it made they, they want to hold those positions so they're going to push back but mm-hmm. in all revolutions you get that pushback and if the revolutionaries or maybe we want to think of ourselves as agents of change whatever if we take strength from that if we know that when this pushback comes and it's going to come it's coming it's going to come mm-hmm. take it as strength take it as an acknowledgement that we're that we're on the path to winning mm-hmm. yeah i think that's wonderful i i, t- I like to think that way too that you know, <laughs> the harder they push back, it, it means that it means that we're winning. Um, so, yeah, that's wonderful. So, yeah, since being an EHM, you've been working, as you said, uh, bringing people to the Amazon. You've also uh, founded nonprofits such as Pachamama Alliance, which is helping indigenous peoples in South America keep, keep big oil off of their lands. Um, so how is that work going? I'm not sure if you do work in Brazil, but have things been frustrated by Bolsonaro's government or... Like that? Yeah, I mean, Bolsonaro is a a demon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's frustrating to have people like that in in control, and we've got a few of them around the world today, including Mm -hmm. here at home. Uh, And it's it's extremely uh, frustrating to see, but that's part of this pushback that we we realize that they're reacting because we're we're on the path to victory now. 
in any revolution, you don't know how it's going to end, but, you know, successful revolutions take energy from the bolts and arrows of the world, from the pushback by the status quo that wants to maintain things as they are. And, and we take energy from that, just like a good martial artist. I've been a martial artist most of my life. You learn that, you know, some guy is much bigger and much stronger than you. you. You're not going to try to overpower him with your muscles because that's not going to work. You want to use you want to learn techniques where you can use his 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 energy, his muscles against him. And and I think that's how good agents of change, good revolutionaries look at things. How do we how do we accept the energy that's coming from these push back people, the status quo, and and turn that around into giving us more energy to move forward. And I certainly think we're seeing that today in the streets uh, of the United cities throughout the United States, and now much of the world is this tremendous rebellion against police brutality. And when the police, I was just watching this morning another sort of a review of what happened in Washington when the president decided he wanted to, you know, give a three-minute photo op at at a church. And the cops just, you know, this incredible force that they exert against the people, but it's it's energized the people around the world, it energized the people on the spot. They, they eventually had to retreat because of tear gas, there was pepper spray, there was all kinds of stuff that was thrown at them. But it's energized us. We're looking at these videos, we're seeing the injustice here. So we're being energized. And, uh, I, you know, that's... That's how you win revolutions, by being energized by the brutality that's thrown up against you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Could not agree more. Um, so do you have anything else to offer, I guess, from your new books and insights for this moment that we're in right now um, and where we're heading, especially in this era of Trump? <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I, I'm, I, I'm very, very hopeful. Uh, or I wouldn't bother to write these things. I wouldn't bother to be on this show. Your show makes me hopeful. You mentioned the the mainstream press a while back. I think you're the mainstream press today. I think the mainstream press is this is the, you're the new normal. The mainstream press has become irrelevant, in my opinion, for the most part, you know. Uh, but yeah, I'm very, very, very hopeful. In touching the jaguar, there's, there's a lot of stories about some of the things we've talked about. They're all true stories, uh, and and but. At the end, you know, you, you, we come down to this process that each one of us can use each day to, uh, to, 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 to do what we want to do in life. And, and I'll just very quickly, the, the process is based on answering three, on answering five questions, and then it, it goes into a daily practice that's about seven or eight minutes a day. Uh, the first question is, what do I most want to do for the rest of my life? What will make me the happiest? What will bring me the greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction? And uh, for me, it's writing. And, you know, for a carpenter, it's working in wood, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second question is, how do, I, how do I help other people in this process? Because we're all happy when we help other people. It could be one other person. It could be the world. So for me as a writer, it's I write stories that I hope will inspire people to transform a death economy to a life economy. For a carpenter, it's like saying, hey, I'm only going to use sustainable materials whenever possible. The third question is, what's stopping me? What are the blockages? What's the jaguar standing there saying, no, you can't do this? As a writer, it might be a voice when I was uh, in, 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 you know, the first time that's happened many, many times. But when I was in college, I'd been a great writer in high school, won prizes, editor paper. In college, I had an English teacher that really criticized my writing, never gave me anything above a C. And it stopped me. I quit college. I quit quit. I eventually went back and studied economics. I didn't write anymore. It hurt too much. And then later, I touched that Jaguar and I said, well, this guy's just one person. Yes, he's a published author, but 
what so what you know what's his criticism mean and then i realized he'd been critical of bob dylan's writing <laughs> bob dylan won the nobel prize in in literature mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it, so i touched that jaguar and said hey just because he criticized me doesn't mean i can't write and then i started writing again so that that so how do how, what jaguar do we have to touch how do we change the perception? That's the fourth one. How do we change the perception? Yes, I'm I, just because this guy said I'm not a writer, I, that, I don't need to listen. And the fifth question is, and, and for a carpenter, incidentally, it would be, oh, so so the 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 the, the, the barriers. People don't want to pay more money for me to use sustainable materials. And when you touch that jaguar, the jaguar says, well, just tell the people uh, it's not it's not a cost. It's an investment in the future by using sustainable materials. Maybe you're paying a little bit more, but that's an investment in your future, your children's future, your grandchildren's future. And then the fifth question is, what actions do I take to make this happen? As a writer, I got to write. Got to write every day or almost every day. I got to keep writing. And as a carpenter, I got to go out and tell my clients. I don't have to be real eloquent, but I got to let them know that, well, let's use sustainable materials. You're investing in the future. So these five questions. What do you most want to do in life? How can you use that to support other people? What's stopping you from doing it? What's the voices saying you can't do it? How do you address these voices to change your perception? And then what actions do you take? Um, and there's a, you know, the, the, the book gives us, like I said, it's, it's like a seven, eight, nine minute practice you can do every day or once a week, whenever you want. And I think when we each do that, it doesn't matter whether you're a podcast host like you, a writer like me, a carpenter, a plumber, a teacher, or parent, whatever you are, you can apply this every day. You can, it can be as, as, as brief, as easy as sending a tweet, or it can be as complex as, as running for president. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we, but we can all do this. And if we all aim for the same goal, and that is to, to create a life economy, to look at how do we make the world a better place, not only for ourselves, but for all future generations. How do we move into what we most value in life, which isn't necessarily the the little gadgets that we buy? How do we do that? And this is an ideal time while we're sequestered at home, while we've got some extra time on our hands, perhaps to really look at how each one of us can do that. It's a great time for this to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing those insights. I think they're really important. that's all the questions that I had for today. So if there's anything else you'd like to add, please do so. But um, otherwise, would you maybe like to shout out where people can find you and your current work? Sure. Thank you, Mexi. Yeah, the johnperkins.org is the best place to start. You can order the book there. You can order it through there at your local bookstore uh, if you want to support your local bookstore, which I very much encourage. Um, but go to johnperkins.org, sign up for my newsletter. There's a little box where you put your email in and, and we'll, I'll keep you updated and we'll be doing trips again. I got a trip to Guatemala to the Mayans there scheduled for January. I'd love to have some of your people come. We, we limit it to 15 people. Um, and so, yeah, I'd really like to keep in touch with your people, Maxie. And I just, I, you know, go to johnperkins.org. I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, but you can get it all there at johnperkins.org. And I, I want to thank you for, for, for what you're doing. I, I, love, I love the track you're on here. I love the idea that you're really, really questioning the system that we've created that obviously is not no longer serving most of us and, and certainly isn't serving the planet as we know the planet. And just thank you so much for what you do. 
Uh, <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> please, please keep doing it. I know you will. You don't need me to tell you that, but mm -hmm. but I just want to say I deeply, deeply appreciate what you're doing and spreading this word. It's so very important to get it out there. Thank you. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. That's uh, just really, really wonderful. And of course, thank you for doing the work that you do. And yeah, just thank you so much for coming on the show. This was really wonderful. My pleasure. She's good.